housekeeping for today has already been read. The passage we'll look at will be Luke 2. But before we look at that text again, let me pray. It's sobering again to recall what this child was and what you would do for us, Christ. That nails, spear will pierce you and they'll pierce you. They pierced you because of our sin. You were pierced for our transgressions and for the iniquity of us all. You bore the penalty. And I pray that as we look at this text again, we would see and be refreshed and encouraged and strengthened as we consider the good news of the gospel. That the Christmas story would be refreshing in new light. Lord, it would not just be the the story that we've heard for generations, but would be the story that strengthens us, that encourages us, that gives us hope even now. And for those of us who face their demise, that it would give them hope as they look forward to their future resurrection. So Lord, I ask that you would give me assistance in making your word clear and that you would encourage us through it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So very familiar text for those who have grown up uh, in the church. It was read to us today, which is very encouraging to consider yet again. There is really three main sections to the section we'll look at, Luke 2, 1 through 20. The first, verses 1 through 7, provide for us the historical context for how Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem. And I'll read that again for us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So again, this section gives us the historical context for how Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem in particular. In verse one tells us that it was due to the decree of Caesar Augustus, who incidentally was the most powerful person in the world. He was the emperor of the whole Roman Empire, which was dominating over the world at that time. And it was through this ruler's decreed census that God used to confirm the prophecy 
that was given regarding the Savior that he would be born in Bethlehem. And we see here God's sovereignty even over this ruler of the world, Caesar Augustus. And we recall again Proverbs 21, 1 that says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over the decisions of every man, especially those even in power. One hundred years earlier, it was revealed to the prophet Micah that God would send a savior and that that savior would be born in Bethlehem. But catch that again. Eight hundred years earlier, God specifically stated what city his savior would be born in. And it was through Caesar Augustus that he came to bring that prophecy about. And that prophecy was in Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The coming forth refers to the fact that this future leader of Israel existed from ancient times. That is, he's supernatural. He existed from ancient times 800 years previous. The point is, is this ruler is one that has existed in eternity past. So God brought about the birth of the Savior of the world through the hapless action of the earthly ruler of the world. And actually the enemy of his people. God brought about this prophecy through the Roman ruler who had conquered Jerusalem and was currently really the enemy of Israel. And this is a good reminder to us that God often uses corrupt governments and authorities, even who are major inconveniences in our lives, to bring about his good purposes. God uses those decisions to bring about his purposes in our life. Making a 70-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem while pregnant was certainly inconvenient. Eventually giving birth in a stable was hardly a blessing to Joseph and Mary. And yet it was through this trial that God was accomplishing his purpose to bring about a Savior To be born in Bethlehem, fulfilling his purposes and accomplishing his people's salvation. William Cooper captured this truth in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I'll read the lyrics to you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints... Fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. But sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. 
and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he shall make it plain. The second part of Luke's account of the Christmas story is the centerpiece of this account. And it's where the significance of this unusual birth is really highlighted and explained. Beginning in verse 8. You have the gospel proclaimed by angels. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. So the first thing we need to note about this account is how the shepherds respond to this vision. Note that They were afraid. Now, it would be understandable for them to be frightened by the surprise that all of a sudden showed up in front of them. But notice how the the text describes their fear. Their fear is described as great fear. The the Greek is epsophathathathon, phobon, magon. Phobon, magon, literally They feared a great fear. So very emphatic. They feared a great fear. I like the NET translation. They were absolutely terrified. That's what it's getting at. They were horrified. Absolutely terrified by what they saw before them. It wasn't just surprised. They were terrified. Completely undone with fear. And notice what the source of this fear is. They're afraid because it's the glory of the Lord that shines around them. Notice it's not the glory of the angels. It's the glory of the Lord that shines around them. Often people naively assume that seeing the glory of God would be like basking in warm sunshine. But... Realistically, it would be more like watching a nuclear bomb explode in front of you. When God first appeared to his people on Mount Sinai, they had a very similar response of terror. Exodus 19, in verse 18, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then the author of Hebrews, when he mentions this account in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, indeed, it was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So even Moses, the mediator, was terrified when he saw God, or at least the glory of the Lord upon the mountain. Also, Isaiah 6 When Isaiah beheld the glory of the Lord in the temple, he said, woe is me. That is, I should be dead. That's the significance of woe. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So notice that fear is the typical response to seeing the glory of God. It's not open palm basking its terror. And this is appropriate when we understand what the glory of God is. 
And one of the most prevalent metaphors that we see in Scripture is the metaphor of fire. And frequently fire is what's used to describe also the glory of the Lord. The ubiquitous presence of fire stations in our cities is a testimony to the devastating power of fires and the fear that they invoke in us. And one of the most prevalent descriptions of God is that He is a consuming fire. Like the fact that fires burn, fires destroy, and fires are unpredictable when they get out of control. We also see that fire is also a great blessing. In fact, the huge burning ball of gas at the center of our solar system has always provided mankind with life, with light, and with warmth. The sun radiates a glory so brilliant that our eyes, even though light years away, would be blinded by just seconds of gazing upon it. Light years away. And the glory of the sun blinds us even still. As C.S. Lewis famously described Aslan, we can say that the sun is good, but it's certainly not safe. And yet the sun is just a minuscule part of God's creation. In fact, God has created trillions upon trillions of stars in the solar system. And the sun is a relatively insignificant one at that. For centuries, people have dreamed of landing upon the moon, but nobody's ever dreamed upon landing upon a star. Because they know, even if they were to get near a star, they would be immediately consumed. So if the consuming glory of stars is too much for, hand, for us to handle, how much more would the consuming glory of our Creator be? The one who spoke and all of those stars came into existence. So although it's reasonable for the shepherds to be terrified when exposed just to the tiniest amount of the glory of God, what the angel proclaims is not a message of doom. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So the, the message is one of good news and great joy. The word good news, of course, is the word euangelion, from which we get the term to evangelize or the gospel. It's the term the gospel. It's the Greek word, the gospel. These angels are proclaiming the gospel. And Luke's using that term very particularly. That's why I've titled this message, The First Gospel Proclamation. It's a message of good news. But notice also, great joy. Charon megaling in the Greek. Great joy. And this is contrasted with the great fear that the shepherds felt. They felt great fear, but the angel says this is a message of great joy. So although it would be completely reasonable for these shepherds to be terrified, to fear for their lives, the angel says just the opposite. This message, our coming to you, is not to bring judgment upon you. It's to bring your greatest joy. Why? How can this be? Moreover, note that this is for all people. So this is not just good news for Israel. 
when that prophecy came that a shepherd would come to lead and rule Israel, the angels say, this is not just a message for Israel. This is a message for all peoples, all the peoples of the earth. What is this message? He declares, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy, a Savior is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And note that this is not just any Savior. This Savior is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Lord, the ruler of the world. The one prophesied who would save his people from their sins. And this is exactly what was told to Joseph just months earlier when the angel came to him in a dream. And know what the angel declared in Matthew chapter 1. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when these angels proclaim this message, they're bringing all these pieces together. This is the message of great joy. The shepherds can be saved from their sins and all peoples. And the angel then graciously offers evidence of the truthfulness of this message. The sign that this is, in fact, the prophesied Savior, the prophesied Messiah, will be that when they go to Bethlehem, they will find this child laying in a manger. That's what will verify this. Not a likely place to put a baby, especially when they consider that this is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the Lord. This is God incarnate. And they're going to find him in a feeding trough. And immediately after the angel finishes his proclamation, the rest of heaven erupts in praise. Clarifying again what this gospel actually means. Verse 13, and suddenly there was the, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. I think the ESV translation that was read to you is a really good translation. Many people have grown up being familiar with the King James Version translation that renders it glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. But the Greek manuscripts indicate that the word that's translated goodwill doesn't describe what the men are going to receive, but rather that adjective describes the men. Peace is extended to those with whom God is pleased. Peace is available to those who desire to repent, who desire to honor God with their life. So their greatest threat is not corrupt rulers, power-hungry kings 
who inconvenience their lives or who send slaughter squads into their cities to kill their children. That is not the great threat to these shepherds or anybody else in Israel. The great threat to these shepherds is the wrath of God. Jesus became man because he alone could provide for us the protection that we needed from the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. Without the provision of his atoning sacrifice, men would be exposed to the undiluted, white-hot wrath of the glory of God. And because men will continue to exist unto eternity, their experience of that wrath will never end. It will be eternal. It's not limited to just a brief moment of incineration. They'll be forced to endure unceasing agony as they remain completely exposed to His radiant glory. Revelation describes the Lord's wrath this way. Those who fail to repent will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of His holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. So because God is holy... And because all men are sinners, the only protection from the white-hot wrath of God is for God Himself to take the penalty that they deserve. As Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So that's why Christ came. That we could be saved from God's wrath. That's why this is good news. On earth, peace. Not wrath, but peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, a person would be terrified if they knew that they'd been sentenced to be stranded in the middle of the Sahara Desert, exposed to the uh, radiance of the sun and its blistering rays without water. But how much more horrified would they be to discover that they were in a spacecraft that was destined to land on the surface of the sun? And even though the sun is a mere creation of God, again, not even the most impressive of all the stars. Men respect its destructive power. But consider this again. The sun is just an inanimate object. It has no soul. It's not alive. It's a ball of gas. It possesses no emotion. And unlike God, the Son is not eagerly awaiting the opportunity to vindicate His name. The glory of God is not safe. It's the most deadly, powerful, And more importantly, the most precious thing that we could ever experience. Jesus died for us, not just so that we could be protected from the all-consuming wrath of God, but so that we might enjoy that same glory 
for eternity with Him. That's the message of great joy. Which is why the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest. And then on earth, peace with those with whom He's pleased. In the third part of this section, we have the people's responses to the gospel. So when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went in haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now, incidentally, you might be wondering, why shepherds? Why, did, Of all the people, why did God first proclaim the gospel to them? Well, I think it's actually because uh, shepherding is, is a common theme that we see throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the favorite figures God uses to describe his own treatment of Israel. Moreover, in the prophecy from Micah that's particularly being referenced here with the babe to be born in Bethlehem, three times in that prophecy, that brief prophecy, shepherding is mentioned. And that's no accident. Moreover, the city of David that the Messiah would be born in is David's city. And what was David before he became the king of Israel? He was a shepherd. Well, that's, that's not an accident. And then moreover, think of how fitting it is that God would first reveal these truths to shepherds and that it's his shepherds who follow after his pattern. They go and proclaim that good news first to the people of Bethlehem. And it's no accident that the description that the New Testament gives to the leaders of the church is one of shepherds or pastors. God likes to use shepherds to care for his people, to proclaim his message. And that's probably why shepherds are chosen. And hearing this amazing message, the shepherds go in haste to Bethlehem. That is, they hurry. They're excited. They want to share what they have heard and experienced, what they believe to be true. Notice, they're not dilly-dallying. They're not wondering, hmm, should we or shouldn't we go? They're excited. They want to find out. And when they arrive, they see that it is true. There was the baby lying in a manger. And after having this message authenticated, knowing for certain that what they had heard is true, seeing the sign, then they proclaim. They proclaim it with confidence. This is true. This is who the child is. And there's three responses to their message. First of all, all who heard it wondered. And that's really a good translation of the word. It means to consider. To, to, is this true? Could what the shepherds be saying be right? It doesn't necessarily mean that they accepted what they heard but that they wondered about it. It was one of those messages that, she, that is too good to be true, so you either immediately embrace it because you're confident in the one who's sharing it, 
or you have some skepticism. You reject it outright because it is too good to be true. And be like me saying to you Trailblazer fans that I just got an update during the worship service that Steph Curry and Kevin Durant were just traded to the Trailblazers. So if you're a basketball fan, you understand how that would be way too good to be true. And it's not, just to be clear. That didn't happen. It's totally fictional, unlike this message that was given. But you would wonder, could it be? I mean, Joseph's the one's telling us, and he's not known for being deceptive. So, but either way, you'd wonder. And that's what this, the response to this message is. It's possible, but you're hesitant to believe. Then you have Mary treasuring these things in her heart. It means to exert mental effort in storing information. It means to keep these things in mind, to remember them, to, to memorize them in order to recall them. Uh, something like you do in preparing for a test when your instructors, your teachers say, this is something you might want to know for the test. You tend to mark it down and keep it in mind. Go over it and review it. That's what Mary's doing. She kept all these things in mind and thought deeply about them. And then you have the shepherd's response. They returned glorifying and praising God. Luke concludes by noting that the shepherds return doing the same things that the angels did. Glorifying and praising God, having the truth of the message confirmed before their eyes, considering the massive implications, the shepherds turn their heart to worship the one who sent his son to take away the sins of his people. Shall we not respond similarly? Amen.